it's uh, September 3rd and I'm not sure how this is going to work out because it's posed as an ad but I decided to try to record it um, this is the world transformation movement and the website is www.humancondition.com uh, the person in the ad um, is put his name down Jeremy Griffith so they asked me if I wanted to listen to this lecture or, or the interview that solves the human condition so I decided to record it on my anchor account so I'm not recording it and then recording a recording I'm just going for the gusto so we'll see what happens To everyone listening, my name is Craig Conway. Now, whilst I've been a, an actor by profession, uh, very recently I've been introduced to doing radio. Um, within this, I talk to people from all over the world. Well, today I have a very, very special guest on the line from Australia. Now, during the turmoil and trauma of this pandemic, uh, it's only amplified the now dire need in the world for a deeper, lasting solution to all of the chaos and suffering in human life. And this deeper, enduring solution is actually what this biologist that I'm about to interview is going to provide us with. He's going to do this by explaining and solving the underlying cause of all the suffering, which is our good and evil stricken so-called human condition. So, I don't care what you're doing, you need to stop and listen to this interview. In fact, I don't care what you're doing for the rest of your life. If you can, you just need to listen to this. Now, the interview is going to happen within four parts. Each is averaging around about 15 minutes, which is not a lot when you consider that we're going to be explaining the whole human condition. So it gives me a great privilege to introduce Australian biologist Jeremy Griffith. He's the author of a book which is titled Freedom, The End of the Human Condition. And this is the book here. This is my copy, which I've had with me now for quite a long time. Uh, and I take it everywhere with me. And there are millions of people all over the globe who are currently studying, reading, and researching through this book that Jeremy has brought to us. So, I'm here to tell everyone that this book has not only blown me away and impressed me, but he has also impressed Professor Harry Prosen, who is a former president of the Canadian Psychiatric Association. He's also one of the world's leading psychiatrists. And he said, I quote, I have no doubt that Jeremy Griffith's biological explanation of the human condition is the holy grail of insight we have sought for the psychological rehabilitation of the human race. This is the book we have been waiting for. It is the book that saves the world. End quote. Now, I think everyone listening would agree that the psychological rehabilitation of the human race is exactly what this world needs. So, buckle into your seats. This is going to be the most interesting, 
and exciting talk you have ever heard. So Jeremy, thank you for talking with us and tell us how does your work bring about the psychological rehabilitation of the human race and end all of the suffering and strife and as Professor Prosen said, save the world. Thank you very much uh, for, for having me on your program, Craig. Finding understanding of our psychologically troubled human condition has actually been what the efforts of every human who has ever lived has been dedicated to achieving and has been uh, contributing to finding. Uh, as Professor Prosen said, finding understanding of the human condition has been the holy grail of the whole human journey of conscious thought and inquiry. We humans have absolutely lived in hope faith and trust that, that one day, somewhere, um, someplace, all the efforts of everyone, but in particular scientists, would finally produce the completely redeeming, uplifting and healing understanding of us humans. Now, uh, I know it must seem outrageous, uh, outrageous to, to claim that, that this goal of goal has, goals has, has finally been achieved, but it has. In fact, um, the human condition is such a difficult subject for us humans to confront and deal with it that I couldn't be talking about it so openly and freely if it hadn't been solved. Okay then, Jeremy, solve the human condition for us. We're all ears. Firstly, I'm a biologist, and that's important because I think everyone will agree that what we need is a non-abstract, um, non-mystical, completely rational and thus understandable scientific, biological explanation of us humans. Okay, so how are we to explain and understand the human condition, understand why we humans are the way we are, so um, brutally competitive, selfish and aggressive, that human life has become all but unbearable? In fact, um, how are we to make so much sense of our divisive behaviour that the underlying cause of it is so completely explained and understood that, as Professor Preston said, the whole of the human race is psychologically rehabilitated and, and everyone's life is transformed. Yes, that's what we want. The human condition finally explained, fixed up and healed forever. Exactly, Craig. So, to start at the beginning, I know everyone listening is living with the belief, well, well it's what we were all taught at school and are told in every documentary we watch, that humans' competitive, selfish and aggressive behaviour is due to us having savage, must reproduce our genes, instincts like other animals have. Certainly, while left-wing thinkers do claim we have some selfless, cooperative instincts, they also say we have this selfish, competitive animal side, which Karl Marx limited to such basic needs as sex, food, shelter and clothing. I mean... Our conversations are saturated with this, this belief, with, with comments like, um, we, we're programmed by our genes to, to try to dominate others and be a winner in the battle of life, and uh, our preoccupation with sexual conquest is due to our primal instincts to sow our seeds, and, and men behave abominably because uh, their bodies are flooded with, must reproduce their genes promoting testosterone, and, and we want a big house uh, because we are innately territorial, and, and, um, and fighting in war is just our deeply rooted combative animal nature expressing itself. Yes, exactly. That's exactly. I mean, that really is what I've understood is the reason for our uh, competitive and aggressive nature that we have brutally 
um, competitive survival of the fittest instincts, which we are always having to try and restrain or, or civilize or try to control as best we can. I mean, that's what I was taught in school. Yes, that's what we were taught. But let's think about this. And what I'm going to say now is very important, so I hope everyone's listening closely. Surely... This idea that we have savage, competitive and aggressive must reproduce our genes instincts cannot be the real reason for our species' competitive and aggressive behaviour. Because, after all, uh, words uh, used to describe our human behaviour, uh, such as um, egocentric, um, arrogant, inspired, depressed, uh, deluded, pessimistic, optimistic, artificial, uh, hateful, cynical, mean, uh, sadistic, immoral, brilliant, um, guilt-ridden, evil, psychotic, neurotic, alienated, all recognise the involvement of our species' fully conscious thinking mind. They demonstrate that there's a psychological dimension to our behaviour, that we don't suffer from a genetic opportunism-driven animal condition, but a conscious mind-based, psychologically troubled human condition. And, and what's more, we humans have cooperative, selfless and loving moral instincts, the voice um, or expression of which we call our conscience, which is the complete opposite of uh, competitive, selfish and aggressive instincts. I mean, as Charles Darwin said, um, the moral sense affords the best and highest distinction between man and the lower animals. And of course... To have acquired these cooperative, selfless and loving moral instincts, our distant ape ancestors um, must have lived cooperatively, selflessly and lovingly. I mean, otherwise, how else could we have acquired them? Yeah. Our ape ancestors can't have been brutal, club-wielding, competitive and aggressive savages as we've been taught. Rather, they must have lived in a, in a Garden of Eden-like state of cooperative, selfless and loving, innocent gentleness which, um, as I'd like to explain uh, uh, to you, uh, Craig, in this interview, um, is, a, is a state that the bonobo species of apes is currently living in, and which uh, anthropological findings, now evidence, uh, we did once live in. For instance, um, anthropologists like uh, Owen Lovejoy are reporting that um, our species-defining cooperative mutualism can now be seen to extend well beyond the deepest Pliocene which is well beyond five million years ago. So, so saying our competitive and aggressive behaviour comes from savage competitive and aggressive instincts in us is simply not true. As I'd like to, to come back to shortly, it's just a convenient excuse we, we have used while we waited for the psychosis acknowledging and solving real explanation of our present competitive and aggressive human condition. Wow, so that's a pretty big statement, Jeremy. I mean, a, a pretty important point that you're making here. Uh, you're saying that our competitive and aggressive behaviour is not due to the must-produce-our-genes instincts like the other animals, but is due to a conscious mind-based, psychologically troubled condition, yes? Yes. Our egocentric and, and, and arrogant and mean and vindictive and even sadistic behaviour has nothing to do wanting to reproduce our genes. I mean, that was absurd. And, and it's actually really good news that our behaviour is due to a conscious mind-based psychologically troubled condition because psychosis can be healed with understanding. I mean, if our competitive and aggressive behaviour was due to us having savage instincts, 
Now, he'd be stuck with that born with uh, hardwired innate behaviour. It would mean we could only ever hope to restrain and control those supposedly brutal instincts. But, but since our species' divisive behaviour is due to a psychosis, that divisive behaviour can be cured with healing understanding. So, so that is very good news. In fact, incredibly exciting news because with understanding, we can finally end our psychologically troubled human condition. It's the understanding of ourselves that we needed to heal the pain in our brains and, and become sound and sane again. As I said, uh, the savage instincts explanation was just a convenient excuse while we searched for the, the psychosis addressing and solving real explanation of our divisive behaviour which is the explanation I'd now like to present. Okay, so what you're saying here, Jeremy, is that we don't need the convenient excuse anymore that we have some kind of savage animal instincts because we have the real explanation of our conscious mind-based, psychologically troubled human condition. Yes, this key, all-important, psychosis addressing and solving explanation is actually very obvious. If we think about it, if an animal was to become fully conscious, like we humans became, then that animal's new self-managing, understanding-based conscious mind would surely have to challenge its pre-existing instinctive orientations to the world, wouldn't it? I mean, a battle would have to break out between the, the emerging conscious mind that operates from a basis of understanding cause and effect and the non-understanding instincts that have always controlled and dictated how that animal behaves. Yep, that makes sense, Jeremy. So what, what happened, though, when this animal became conscious and its whole life turned into a, a, a psychologically distressed mess? Well, the easiest way to see what happened is to imagine uh, the predicament faced by an animal whose life had always been controlled by its instincts suddenly developing a conscious mind. Because if we do that, we'll very quickly see how that animal uh, would develop a, a psychologically troubled, competitive and aggressive condition like, um, like we suffer from. Yeah. So, so let's imagine a stork. We'll, we'll call him Adam. <laughs> I mean, each summer, Adam instinctively migrates north with the other storks around uh, the coast of Africa to Europe uh, to breed, as some varieties of storks do. Now, since he has no conscious mind, Adam's stork doesn't think about or question his behaviour. He just follows what his instincts tell him to do. But what if we give Adam a large brain capable of conscious thought? He, he will start uh, to think for himself. But many of his new ideas will not be consistent with his instincts. For instance, um, while migrating north uh, with the other storks, Adam notices a, an island full of apple trees. Uh, he, he then makes a conscious decision uh, to divert from his migratory flight path and explore the island. I mean, this is his first grand experiment in self-management. But when Adam's instincts realise he, he has strayed, uh, strayed off course, they're going to criticise his de deprogrammed behaviour and, and dogmatically try to pull him back on, onto his instinctive flight path, aren't they? In effect, they're going to condemn him as being bad. So... Imagine that the turmoil Adam will experience. He can't go back to simply following his instincts. His instinctive orientations to the migratory flight path were acquired over thousands of generations of natural selection, but those orientations are not understandings. And since his conscious mind requires understanding, 
uh, which can only get through experimentation, inevitably a war will break out with his instincts. Now, ideally at this point, Adam's conscious mind uh, would sit down, as it were, and, and explain to his instincts why he's defying them. He, he would explain that the gene-based natural selection process uh, only gives species instinctive orientations to the world. Where his nerve-based conscious mind, uh, which is able to make sense of cause and effect, needs understanding of the world to operate. But of course, Adam doesn't have this self-understanding. He's only just begun his search for knowledge. In fact, he's not even aware what the problem actually is. He simply started to feel that he's bad, even evil. Okay, so what you're saying is a war has broken out between his conscious mind and his instincts, which he can't explain and it's left him feeling bad, or that he is bad in some way, or e even evil. So, what happens then? Well, tragically, while searching for understanding, we can see that three things are unavoidably going to happen. Adam, Adam is going to defensively retaliate against the implied criticism from his instincts. Uh, he's going to desperately seek out any reinforcement he can find to relieve himself of the negative feelings. And he's going to try to deny the criticism and block it out of his mind. So he's going to become angry, egocentric and alienated, which is the psychological upset state we call the human condition, because it was us humans who developed a, a conscious mind and became psychologically upset. And, uh, and I should say that upset is the right word for our condition, because while we are, we are not evil or bad, we are definitely psychologically upset from having uh, to participate in humanity's heroic search for knowledge. I mean, uh, corrupted and fallen have been used to describe our condition, but they have a sort of negative connotation that, that we can now appreciate is not deserved. So, so upset's the better word. Okay, so Adam's intellect or ego, uh, ego being uh, just another word for the intellect since the dictionary defines ego as the conscious thinking self. So Adam's uh, ego became centred or focused on the need to justify itself. Adam became egocentric selfishly, uh, preoccupied aggressively, competing for opportunities to prove he's good and not bad, to validate his worth, to get a win, to, uh, to essentially eke out any positive reinforcement that would bring him some relief from his criticising instincts. He, he, he unavoidably became self-preoccupied or selfish and aggressive and competitive. Okay, so our selfish, competitive and aggressive behaviour is not due to savage instincts, but to a psychologically upset state or condition. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, suffering psychological upset was the price we conscious humans had to be prepared to pay for our heroic search for understanding. In the words of the song uh, Impossible Dream from the musical uh, the man of La Mancha, we had to be prepared to march into hell for a heavenly cause. We had to lose ourselves to find ourselves. Um, yeah. uh, we had to suffer becoming angry, alienated and egocentric until we found sufficient knowledge to explain ourselves. Wow, Jeremy. I mean, this is just uh, fascinating. So, Adam Stork, we humans, uh, developed a conscious mind and unavoidably started warring with our own instincts. An upsetting war which, well, could only end when we could explain and understand why we had to defy our instincts, which is the understanding that you have just supplied, yes? Exactly. Remember, Adam Stork became 
offensively angry, egocentric and alienated because he couldn't explain why it was defying his instincts. So, so now that, uh, that we can explain why, those defensive behaviours are no longer needed and, and can end. So that's basically all there is to explain. That, that's the biological explanation of the human condition that, that so explains us that, as Professor Frozen said, it brings about the psychological rehabilitation of the human race. Yeah. This is such a, a simple story, but so far-reaching in its ramifications. I mean, it, it is world-changing, is what it is, because it truly enables the psychological rehabilitation of the human race. I mean, that is just wonderful. Okay, I'm speaking with Australian biologist Jeremy Griffith. Hello, I'm Craig Conway, and I'm talking with Australian biologist Jeremy Griffith about this is how part we can all two. end the turmoil and trauma in the world through explaining and understanding the human condition, which is the instinct versus intellect explanation Jeremy has just given us in part one of this interview. Okay, so as we go into part two, Jeremy, I do have some questions uh, which I'd like to ask. Now, firstly, while it seems like an obvious explanation that when we became conscious, a psychologically upsetting battle must have broken out with our dictatorial instincts, um, if it is so obvious, why weren't we taught this at school? So that's the, the first question there. Uh, and secondly, how were our bonobo-like ape ancestors able to become cooperative and loving? Which, as you said, uh, must be the origins of our instinctive moral conscience that Darwin said distinguishes us from other animals. And my third question is, how does the psychological rehabilitation of the human race that Professor Prosen describes actually take place? I mean, do, do we all have to go into therapy or something? Okay, by the way, I want to mention also that since there's quite a few new and very interesting concepts to think about, Jeremy has said that he'll make both the video and the transcript of this interview available at the top of the website that promotes this understanding of the human condition, which is the World Transformation Movement's website at humancondition.com. Now, this will be there as a video and the transcript as a little book, so you can re-listen to or read the interview again there. Uh, because, as I said, this is a big subject about the human condition, so there's quite a bit to take in and think about. Okay, right. And they're very good questions, Craig. Okay. So to begin with your first question, which is that um, if this instinct versus intellect explanation is so obvious, why haven't we been taught it at school? Now, yeah. the answer is that while it has been recognised, even from ancient times, that the emergence of our conscious mind somehow caused us to fall from grace or, or however you want to describe the corruption of our original innocent, cooperative and loving state. It wasn't until science revealed the difference between the gene-based and nerve-based learning systems, which is uh, that, that genes can orientate but nerves need to understand, that we finally were in a position to explain the good reason for our angry, egocentric and alienated human condition. I mean, the biblical story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that, that uh, Moses wrote so long ago in about uh, 1500 BC actually perfectly describes the psychologically upsetting battle that emerged between our instincts and conscious intellect. It says, um, what does it say, that um, 
Adam and Eve, in other words, we humans, took the fruit from the tree of knowledge and were disobedient. In other words, uh, we developed a conscious mind and free will. But in that pre-scientific story, it says Adam and Eve then became evil, perpetrators of, of sin, because they became angry, egocentric and alienated. And as a result, Moses said they were banished from the Garden of Eden, a state of uh, cooperative and loving innocence. You see, not knowing how naturally selected instincts differ from cause and effect operating uh, consciousness, this story of Adam and Eve uh, becoming conscious could only conclude that the angry, egocentric and alienated condition that emerged when we, when we became conscious was a bad, evil, sinful state. But you see, this scientific presentation says, no, that story got it wrong. Adam and Eve are actually... Not just good, but the heroes of the whole story of life on earth. Because surely the conscious mind is nature's greatest invention. And to be given the task of searching for understanding while the whole world's condemning you was the hardest and toughest of tasks. Because that condemnation was universal. All the other uh, innocent storks are condemning the search for knowledge. And since all of nature, the, the rain, the clouds, the, the trees and other animals are all associated with our original instinctive self that was condemning us, the whole world in effect ganged up on Adam and Eve, I, us humans. And yet all the time we were good and not bad, but we couldn't explain why. But now at last, through the benefit of science, we can. Yeah, I hadn't realised that, but it is true. I mean, Adam and Eve taking the fruit from the tree of knowledge is a, a metaphor for being conscious. And then they were thrown out of the Garden of Eden of original innocence because it appeared that they were bad for doing so. But now, thankfully, we can explain that they, well, we humans, we weren't bad at all. In fact, we are the heroes of the story of life on Earth. That's right. We can now explain and understand that we conscious humans are immense heroes and not villains after all. I mean, how relieving is that? Yeah. And uh, with regard to recognition of the upsetting conflict between our, our moral instinct and, and conscious intellect, the biblical story of Adam and Eve is far from the only recognition of it from ancient times. I mean, indeed, as the researcher um, uh, Richard Heinberg summarised, in his 1990 book, Memories and Visions of Paradise. Every religion begins with the recognition that human consciousness has been separated from the divine source, that a former sense of oneness has been lost. Everywhere in religion and myth, there is an acknowledgement that we have departed from an original innocence and can return to it only through the resolution of some profound inner discord. The cause of the fall is described variously as disobedience, as eating of the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge, and as spiritual amnesia, which is um, forgetting or, or, uh, or blocking out or denial, alienation, which is our psychosis. So all our religions and most of our mythologies have recognised the basic conflict within us, that, that, that emergence of, of consciousness caused our fall from innocence. Yeah. In, uh, way back in about 800 BC, the Greek uh, poet Hesiod wrote uh, of our species' pre-conscious time of, of, of living cooperatively and lovingly in his epic poem, Works and Days. He wrote, When gods alike and mortals rose to birth, a golden race, the immortals formed on earth. Like gods they lived with calm, untroubled mind. 
free from the toils and anguish of our kind, no decrepit age misshaped their frame. Strangers to all their lives and feasts flowed by, dying they sank in sleep nor seemed to die. Theirs was each good, the life-sustaining soil, yielded its copious fruits and bribed by toil. They with abundant goods midst quiet lands, all willing shared the gathering of their hands. So yeah, they didn't have a troubled conscious mind and they lived a sharing gentle life. Yeah, I've heard of the idea of a, a golden race, but I, I didn't actually know where it came from. So, so what you're saying then, Jeremy, is our distant ancestors had a calm and untroubled mind. No human condition yet. Yes, that's right. And in 360 BC, Hesiod's Greek compatriot, Plato, gave this very similar description of our species' pre-conscious time and innocence. He wrote, There was a time when we beheld the beatific vision and were initiated into a mystery which may be truly called most blessed, celebrated by us in our state of innocence before we had any experiences of evils to come, when we were admitted to the, to the sight of apparitions innocent and simple and calm and happy, which we beheld shining in pure light, pure ourselves, and not yet enshrined in that living tomb which we carry about now. And Plato also gave this other description of this uh, innocent golden age in our species' pre-conscious past, writing of a time when we lived a blessed and spontaneous life, when neither was there any violence or war or quarrel among them. In those days, there were no forms of government or separate possession of women and children, for all men rose again from the earth, having no memory of the past. So, uh, in other words, they lived in a pre-conscious state. And the earth gave them fruits in abundance, which grew on trees and shrubs unbidden and, and were not planted by the hand of man. And they dwelt naked and mostly in the open air, for the temperature of their season was mild, and they had no beds but lay on soft couches of grass, which grew plentifully out of the earth. Yeah, so the thing is, Hesiod and Plato, like Moses, were living in a time when science still had to be developed, so, so they weren't able to provide the redeeming instinct can, can orientate, but only nerves can understand good reason why we departed from innocence and seemingly became evil, bad people. Yeah, because there was no science back then. Precisely. It's only in the last 150 years or so that science has given us, A, the ability uh, to know that the gene-based natural selection process gives species orientations to the world, and B, the knowledge of our, nerve, uh, of our nerves and, uh, and how they're able to remember events, which um, much developed, has led to our mind being able to sufficiently understand the relationship between cause and effect to become conscious of or, or aware of or intelligent about those relationships. Uh, so that's only happened in the last 150 years. But since the fossil record of our ancestors suggests that our, our large association cortex thinking fully conscious brain appeared some two million years ago, that means that, uh, that for almost all of those two million years we've been conscious, we've had no ability to explain and understand why we corrupted our original innocent instinctive self or soul. Mm -hmm. And without that redeeming explanation, the only way we could cope with that, with the astronomical guilt of having destroyed Eden, has been to deny we ever lived in a cooperative and loving innocent state. Yeah. And that's exactly where the excuse that we have savage, competitive and aggressive instincts like other, like other animals came to our rescue. I mean, 
As false as it is, it's been an absolutely brilliant excuse because instead of our instincts being all loving and thus unbearably condemning of our present non-loving state, they are made out to be vicious and brutal, must reproduce your genes, instincts like other animals. And instead of our conscious mind being the, uh, the instinct-defying cause of our corruption, it was made out to be the blameless mediating hero that had to step in and control those supposed vicious instincts within us. And, and any, any of those who, who dare to admit the truth of our cooperative and loving past, like, like Hesiod and Plato, were, were just dismissed as deluded romantics. And the whole idea of an innocent Edenic past was, was said to be nothing more than, than a nostalgia for the, uh, the, the security and, and warmth and, and comfort of infancy. That, that it was never at a historical state, as uh, the Jungian uh, psychologist Eric Newman said in his book, The Origin and History of Consciousness. Yeah, and we couldn't face the truth that we had turned utopia into dystopia, into a, a dreadful place of conflict and suffering, yes? That's right, Craig. Now, I, I should point out that while most contemporary thinkers have clung to the savage instincts excuse for our divisive behaviour, there have been some who, like the ancient thinkers, truthfully recognised the basic instinct versus in intellect elements involved in producing the human condition. Eugene Murray, Paul McLean, Arthur Kessler are a few come to mind. But while all contemporary thinkers have had the benefit of science, having revealed the difference between the gene-based and nerve-based learning systems, and have therefore had the means to truthfully explain the human condition, those who did recognise the basic instinct versus intellect elements didn't take their thinking far enough to actually explain the human condition. And, and those who have been attached to the false savage instincts excuse, which is the great majority of scientists, obviously haven't been thinking truthfully, so, so they couldn't explain the human condition. Which is all why it's taken the truthful thinking of the preeminent South African philosopher Sir Lawrence van der Post and following him myself to finally present the complete, true explanation of the human condition. Okay, and, and Jeremy, I assume that people can read about the um, contemporary thinkers who recognise this instinct versus intellect uh, elements involved in the human condition, and, and those who clung to the savage instincts excuse. Um, people could read about this on the World Transformation Movement's website, uh, which is at humancondition.com, yes? Yes, they can, Craig. In, in particular, in the fourth video at the top of the homepage. Also, um, how Sir Lawrence van der Post and I managed to address and solve the human condition is described in my 2020 book, How Lawrence van der Post Saved the World, which is also freely available on that website. Basically, uh, what's explained in that book is that since everyone is naturally, variously, psychologically upset from their different encounters with humanity's battle to find knowledge, there was always going to be a few who were fortunate enough in their infancy and childhood to escape encountering the angry, eccentric and alienated effects of that upsetting battle. And, and it's these few who could look into the human condition without being overly confronted by it. And, and Sir Lawrence and I were two of these extremely fortunate denial-free thinking people, which is, is how we're able to, to find understanding of the human condition. I should also say that, that while there's, there's growing support for this now desperately, uh, absolutely desperately needed understanding of the human condition, mainstream science is yet to recognise and support it. But, but, but that's 
what happens with paradigm shifting breakthroughs in science? I mean, uh, when the physicist uh, Max Planck uh, said science progresses funeral by funeral, he was recognising how attached each generation of scientists become to the way of thinking they grew up with and, and therefore how slow science as a whole is uh, to move to a new paradigm of understanding. And, uh, and then the playwright George Bernard Shaw also warned of how difficult it is to introduce a new paradigm of thinking, um, especially one that dares to confront the historically uh, unbearably confronting uh, and off-limits subject of the human condition, when he said all great truths begin as blasphemies. So, so yeah, um, confronting the human condition when everyone has been living in fearful denial of it, e even though it has finally been made, uh, explained and, and, uh, and safe to confront, it represents the biggest of all blasphemies. Yeah. No, I understand completely there. Uh, I mean, from my limited experience, Jeremy, uh, I know how difficult it is to get people to change their way of thinking. Uh, but, but your basic point is that Science's discovery of the way genes and nerves work has possible for the liberation of humanity from the horror of the human condition. Yeah, that's the essential truth. Science is the liberator, the so-called messiah or redeemer of humankind, as we've always hoped it would be. Yeah, and all this in the nick of time, Jeremy, because I, I actually don't think the world can cope with any more upset behaviour from us humans. Uh, but. Of course, we still need the scientific community to get on board and support this understanding. Absolutely. While we've had to live in denial of our corrupted, psychologically upset condition, while we couldn't explain it, the truth is that on a graph showing the ever-increasing levels of upset in humans, those levels, uh, especially of psychosis and alienation, have been increasing so rapidly lately that the line tracking their rise is near vertical, with the amount of upset virtually doubling now on each new generation. Um, Freedom SA 59 on our World Transformation Movement website describes this, uh, this terrifying uh, in-play threat of, of terminal levels of psychosis. Basically, we had virtually lost the race between self-destruction and self-understanding. Indeed, um, early last century, the author, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, wrote that um, we are living through deeply anxious days. A and if we are to relieve our anxiety, we must diagnose its cause. What is the meaning of man? To this question, no answer is being offered. And I have the feeling that we are moving towards the darkest era our world has ever known. A and the deeply anxious days have very greatly increased um, in the century since then. So we are now very much in the midst of the darkest era our world has ever known. So, so this world-saving, relieving of the cause, understanding of the meaning of man, has definitely only arrived in the nick of time, which means the scientific community definitely, definitely needs to get its act together and support this breakthrough. Yeah. So now I'll address your other questions, Craig, but I should mention... Uh, that the first of the videos on the World Transformation Movement's website warns of the difficulty not only scientists have had, but almost everyone has had trying to confront uh, and, and think about the historically unbearably confronting subject uh, of our corrupted condition, which has finally been made, been uh, explained and made safe to confront and admit. I'm Craig Conway, and I'm speaking with Australian biologist Jeremy Griffin.
we're continuing our important conversation with Australian biologist Jeremy Griffith, who's been explaining the human condition and how understanding it can end all the trauma and suffering in the world. And boy, don't we need that. So, in part one, Jeremy explained that we, conscious humans, became angry, egocentric and alienated because we couldn't explain why we had to defy our instincts. But now that we can explain this and understand ourselves, those defensive ways of coping are no longer needed and the human race is psychologically rehabilitated. In part two, Jeremy explained that the reason we had to use the dishonest, savage instincts excuse is because science had to find understanding of the way genes and nerves work. That genes can orientate a species, but nerves are needed to understand cause and effect. So Jeremy, my second question for this, part three of our interview, is how were our bonobo-like ape ancestors able to become cooperative and loving, which, as you said, must be the origin of our instinctive moral conscience that Darwin said distinguishes us from other animals? Yes. Okay. Okay, so... So, how we acquired our moral instincts has been one of the greatest mysteries in biology. The, 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 primate, uh, the primatologist Richard Wrangham described it as a question that has lain unsolved at the core of biology ever since Darwin. And I know Darwin himself described it as the one special difficulty with his concept of natural selection. And the reason for the, for the difficulty, and this is a bit of basic biology for you, is that genes normally can't select for unconditionally selfless, fully cooperative traits simply because such traits tend to be self-eliminating and so normally can't become established in a species. I mean, you know, um, by all means, you, you can be selfless and sacrifice your genes for me, but I'm not about to be selfless and sacrifice my genes for you. Which, by the way, means that the cooperation beats competition group selection theory that left-wing thinkers say explains our capacity to be selfless is biologically impossible. See my book, Death by Dogma. So, so the question is, how could such a selfish process as natural selection have created loving selflessness in us? Mm. Okay. Now, the answer is it was achieved in our forebears through nurturing. To explain what's so significant about a mother's nurturing of her offspring, I first need to point out that a mother's maternal instinct to care for her offspring is selfish because she's ensuring the reproduction of her genes by ensuring the survival of her offspring, who obviously carry her genes. So, so maternalism is selfish, is a selfish trait, which, as I've just said, genetic traits normally have to be uh, for them to reproduce and carry on to the next generation. However... And this is all important. From the infant's perspective, maternalism, maternalism does have the appearance of being selfless. From the infant's perspective, it's being treated unconditionally selflessly. The, the, the mother is giving her offspring uh, food and, and warmth and, and, and shelter and support and protection for apparently nothing in return. So it follows that if the infant can remain in infancy for an extended period, and be treated with a lot of seemingly altruistic love, it'll be indoctrinated with that selfless love and grow up and behave accordingly. So, so selfish maternalism can train an infant in altruistic self, selflessness. And I might mention that uh, 
Freedom Essay 21 on our World Transformation Movement website and Chapter 5 of my book Freedom explain this love, indoctrin uh, love indoctrination process as we call it more fully. So what you're saying is that the mother's nurturing of their infants is primarily genetically selfish because it en ensures the reproduction of her genes but to the infant it seems like it's being given unconditionally selfless love. Yes, that's right. And if we think about primates being semi-upright from living in the trees and swinging through the branches and thus having their arms free to hold a, a dependent infant, it's clear that they are especially facilitated to support and prolong the mother-infant relationship and so develop this nurtured, um, loving, uh, cooperative behaviour. And in fact, bonobos, the ape species who live south of the Congo River in Africa, are extraordinarily matriarchal or, or, or female role focused and, and extraordinarily nurturing. Uh, you can find photos online and I'll include uh, some in the transcript booklet and in the video of this interview um, that illustrate ju just how nurturing bonobos are. They, they show bonobo mothers giving their infants their devoted and undivided attention. Wow, yeah. Um, and as a result of, of all this nurturing, bonobos are the most cooperative and loving of all primates, which, which is evidenced by these absolutely amazing quotes. I just have to read to you. Bonobo uh, zookeeper Barbara Bell writes that adult bonobos demonstrate tremendous compassion for each other. For example, Kitty, the eldest female, is completely blind and hard of hearing. Sometimes she gets lost and confused. They'll just pick her up and take her where she, where she needs to go. And uh, primatologist uh, Sue Savage Rumba says, bonobo life is centered around the offspring. Unlike what happens among chimpanzees, all members of the bonobo social group help with infant care and share food with infants. If you're a bonobo infant, you can do no wrong. Bonobo females and their infants form the core of the group. Uh, a filmmaker of the French documentary Bonobo says, they're surely the most fascinating animal in, on the planet. They're the closest animals to human in that they uh, share almost 99% of our genetic makeup. Once I got hit on the head with a, with, a, uh, with a branch that had a bonobo on it, I sat down and the bonobo noticed I was in a difficult situation and came and took me by the hand and moved my hair back like they do. So, so they live in, on compassion. That's really interesting to experience. And what about this quote? And bonobo researcher um, Vanessa Woods gives this first-hand account of bonobos' unlimited, unlimited capacity for love uh, from, from her study of them in, in the Congo Basin. She writes, Bonobo love is like a laser beam. They stop, they stare at you as though they have been waiting their whole lives for you to walk into their jungle. And then they love you with such helpless abandon that you love them back. You have to love them back. Wow, Jeremy, I mean, these are astonishing quotes. They really are. Yes, they are truly amazing quotes. And bonobos are our closest living relatives. As mentioned, they share 99% of our DNA. So. So we can see that the bonobos provide the perfect evidence for how our distant ape ancestors became cooperative and loving. Uh, I, I have another picture here of, um, of a group of bonobos resting 
in a grassy glade, which I, I'll also put on in the transcript booklet. And it and it's perfectly equates with the description I mentioned earlier that Plato gave about what life was like uh, for humans back in the golden age of merging togetherness. Plato said, he said, um, and they dwelt naked and mostly in the open air. The temperature of their season was mild and they had no beds but lay on soft couches of grass which grew plentifully out of the earth. So there's the grass and there's the bananas. Mm. Um, clearly, we have perfect instinctive memory if we, if we don't choose to deny it of what life was like before the fall because Plato didn't know about the existence of bonobos and yet knew exactly what our bonobo-like infant, uh, uh, bonobo-like life was before the fall was like. Yeah. Now, now, this quote is a bit long, but it's such a wonderful intuitive remembrance of our species bonobo-like time in, in an alienation-free, all-sensitive and all-loving state of innocence that I just have to read it out. It's from the great Russian uh, novelist uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky. He wrote of a time when the grass glowed with bright and fragrant flowers. Birds were flying in the air and perched fearlessly on my shoulders and arms and joyfully struck me with their darling wings. And at last I saw and knew the people of this happy land. They came to me of themselves, surrounded me, kissed me. The children of the sun, the children of their sun. Oh, how beautiful they were. Their faces were radiant. In their words and voices there was a note of childlike joy. It was the earth untarnished by the fall. On it lived people who had not yet sinned. They desired nothing and were at peace. They did not aspire to knowledge of life as we aspire to understand it, because their life was full. But their knowledge was higher and deeper than ours. But I could not understand their knowledge. They showed me their trees, and I could not understand their intense love with which they looked at them. It was as though they were talking with creatures like themselves, and I'm convinced that the trees understood them. They looked at all of nature like that, at the animals who lived in peace with them and did not attack them, but loved them, conquered by their love. There was no quarreling, no jealousy among them, for they all made one fan, fan, made up one family. I mean, this description of being conquered by their love is so like the description just given by the Bonobo researcher Vanessa Woods, isn't it? When she said... Um, yeah. Uh, um, bonobos love you with such helpless abandon that you have to lo love them back. You have to love them back. Again, we see um, how accurate our memory is if we don't deny it of what life was like before the fall. I mean, that quote is so wonderful. It's just amazing. Thank you, Jeremy. I'm, I'm glad you read it out. Uh, this nurturing explanation of our moral instincts seems reasonably obvious and, and evidenced by those quotes about bonobo behaviour and also by the photographs of the, the bonobos. So why haven't I heard about this until now, until you brought this information to me? Well, just like the obvious truth that, that our species once lived cooperatively and, and lovingly, this truth that we acquired our moral instincts through nurturing has been an unbearable truth while we couldn't explain why we humans became angry, egocentric and alienated and as a result lost the ability to adequately nurture our offspring with unconditional love. The, the, the truth of our species' identical, loving and all-sensitive, innocent past 
and the truth that our nurturing is what made us human have both been impossible truths to accept while we couldn't truthfully explain our present immensely corrupted human condition, explain why our species lost the ability to fully nurture its offspring. I mean, as has been observed, parents would rather admit uh, to being an axe murderer than a bad mother or father. Now, in fact, this reasonably obvious nurturing explanation for our moral conscience was first put foot, foot forward by the, the American philosopher John Fiske in his book Outlines of, um, Outlines of Cosmic Philosophy, which I think was published in 1874, which is only a few years after Darwin published his theory of natural selection. And at, at the time, um, uh, Fiske's, uh, uh, Fiske's explanation was, was actually recognised as being, and I quote, far more important than Darwin's principle of natural selection and one of the most beautiful contributions ever made to the evolution of man. Mm. And uh, Darwin himself went so far as to write to Fisk saying, I never in my life read so lucid and an and expositor and therefore thinker as you are. But again, while we couldn't explain our loss of ability to adequately nurture our offspring, this far more important um, insight than Darwin's principle of natural selection was let die and eventually just disappeared from the biological uh, discourse. I might point out that these are all fairly obvious and simple explanations. That uh, uh, one, Darwin's natural selection explanation for the variety of species. Um, two, uh, Fisk's and, and my nurturing explanation for our moral instincts. Uh, three, the instinct versus intellect explanation that I've given for the human condition. And there's also four, the, the explanation I give in Chapter 7 of Freedom for how we humans became fully conscious when other species haven't. And there's also five, the, the negative entropy-driven integrative meaning of existence, uh, which we have personified as God, uh, that is explained in Chapter 4 of Freedom. And I should say... Uh, together, these are the five main questions science has had to answer about our world and place in it. So yes, these are all reasonably obvious, straightforward, simple explanations that bear out uh, biologist Alan Savory's observation that uh, whenever there's been a major insoluble problem for mankind, the answer when finally found has always been very simple. As Freedom makes clear, having to live in denial of the human has blocked our access to so many reasonably obvious truths. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, this is really amazing to learn about how science has denied our species uh, cooperative and loving heritage and the nurtured origins of that cooperative and loving soul. But it all really does make sense. I mean, we certainly needed the defence for our corrupted condition before we could face the truth about it, I guess. Anyway, I am speaking with Australian biologist Jeremy Griffith. Hello and welcome back to part four of the interview. I'm Craig Conway and I'm here with Jeremy Griffith, the biologist who has just explained how humans acquired our moral instincts. This is an absolutely remarkable interview. So continuing on, Jeremy, uh, what about my third question for this final part four of the interview, which is, um, how does the psychological rehabilitation of the human race that this understanding gives us actually take place. Now, do we all need to go into therapy or something? Well, what this real and actually very obvious 
instinct versus intellect explanation of the human condition fundamentally does is lift the burden of guilt from the human race. It establishes that we humans are good and not bad after all. Uh, while we're all uh, inevitably variously angry, egocentric and alienated from our, our different encounters with humanity's heroic battle to find knowledge, ultimately self-knowledge, understanding of our corrupted condition, we can now know that every human is fundamentally good. And this ability to understand and know there was a good reason why the human race became psychologically upset is the key relieving understanding we have been in search of ever since we became conscious some two million years ago and our corrupted condition emerged. I mean, that, that is the key relief for our mind. Being finally able to understand that we are good and not bad is what bring up, brings us the greatest psychological relief of all. I mean, yeah, the, the, the psychoanalyst Carl Jung uh, was forever saying wholeness for humans depends on the ability to own our own shadow. And, and since we can now own the shadow of our species' two million years corrupted condition, the human race is finally in a position to become whole. I mean, the word psychosis literally means soul illness and psychiatry literally means soul healing derived as they are from psyche, meaning soul, and osis, uh, meaning abnormal state, and iatreo, which, which uh, means healing. Mm. But we've never been able to heal our soul. Explain to our original instinctive self or soul that we, the, uh, us fully conscious thinking uh, humans, are good and not bad, and by so doing, reconcile and heal our split selves. But now at last we can. Well, there is an adage that says the truth will set you free. So what you're saying then, Jeremy, is that the truth of our fundamental goodness is the truth that we needed to set us free from the human condition. Precisely. And while that is the main relief our mind needed, obviously, the more we digest that relieving understanding, the more healing relief comes to every aspect of our upset condition. And to have had to endure being unjustly condemned as bad for two million years does mean that there's a great deal of upset to heal. I mean, to appreciate how much upset exists in us humans now, imagine living for just one day with the injustice of being condemned as bad, even evil, when you intuitively knew but were unable to explain that you were actually the complete opposite of evil namely truly wonderful, good and meaningful. In fact, uh, not just good, but the hero of the story of life on Earth. Y you would be hurt to the core and furious, wouldn't you? Mm. Now, extrapolate that experience over two million years and we can begin to appreciate just how much volcanic frustration and anger must now exist within us humans. I mean, while we have learned to significantly restrain and conceal, I mean, we call it civilised, um, the phenomenal amount of upset within us, under the surface, we are all, we must all be boiling with rage. And sometimes, um, uh, when our restraint can no longer find a way to contain it, that anger must express itself. Hence our, our capacity for shocking acts of cruelty and sadism, hate, murder and war. Yeah. And no wonder we have led such an evasive denial, practicing, lying, uh, avoiding any criticism, escapist, alienated, superficial and artificial, greedy, egocentric, power, fame, 
fortune and glory-seeking existence. We've had to smother ourselves with material glory while we lack the spiritual glory of compassionate understanding of ourselves. So there's, there's an enormous amount of upset to subside and heal in us humans. And that will obviously take time. In fact, um, we, we have to expect that that will take a number of generations to completely be ameliorated. Um, but, but the good news, and this is very important, is that while it'll take a number of generations to heal all the upset in us humans, everyone can immediately 